So um, as Lent is unfolding this year, uh, Sarah and I have been keeping the grand silence. I think some of, some of the others of you are as well. Uh, so we've turned off all digital media. No Netflix while we fold our laundry. No podcasts while we clean the kitchen. And no music in the car. And uh, for the first few days, what struck us most was that it was boring. Um, <laughs> But more recently, uh, that has given way to just quite a lot of sadness and emptiness. Uh, so what it's done is it's put us more in touch with our need, uh, with the things that are broken and sick in our hearts, and with the things that are missing and lacking in our lives. All that entertainment and digital noise had been like distracting us from the truth uh, and numbing us to it. Um, it caused us to forget the problems that were really there. Um, but we're realizing that all that digital media did absolutely nothing at all to heal us, nothing at all to fix the problem, uh, and if anything, it just made the problem worse. So uh, much as we might not like it, uh, we do count our current uh, sadness and sense of emptiness as progress, <laughs> as a step in the right direction, uh, while we wait for God to, to help us and heal us. Um, and if some of you are keeping Lent in similar ways and experiencing that sense of emptiness, uh, then I want to encourage us all today from this uh, story from the Gospel of John, remembering that we believe in a God who heals, that our God has the power to heal us. He has the power to heal anything. He can heal anyone of anything. There are no limits. He can repair eyes and ears. He can regrow organs and limbs. He can mend broken hearts. He can even raise the dead. And we see this power to heal very clearly in John chapter 5. So please turn there with me now. It's page 890 of the Church Bibles, John chapter 5. Starting at verse 1 of chapter 5. So um, this story of Jesus who heals the man at the pool of Bethesda has plenty of interesting details in it. And I think it really helps us to understand some of the patterns in the way that God heals people in general. So I want to explore, first of all, God's heart to heal. Second, the relationship between healing and sin. And third, the healing as a sign. Uh, so God's heart to heal, the relationship between healing and sin, and the healing as a sign. First of all, um, we see here God's heart to heal. John chapter 5, verse 1 says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, in Hebrew, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Uh, so Theo was really helpful in telling us a good bit about Bethesda already. Uh, we know from history and archaeology that uh, Bethesda was a complex of pools, that there were two main pools with um, uh, a 25-foot space between them. And the colonnades were, were around the four sides of the uh, complex of pools. There was one on each side. And the fifth colonnade was in between the two main pools. So as we imagine that big complex that we saw in the picture, um, imagine it just full of people, people who were blind and lame and paralyzed all crowded in on every side of these pools. Um, and these were people who were seriously injured or disabled. These were people who couldn't do any work at all. 
their presence here at the pools of Bethesda suggested that they really had nowhere else to be. They tried everything else. If a doctor could have healed them, then they'd have seen a doctor. If a priest could have healed them through prayer, they'd have seen a priest. And most of them had probably seen several doctors and several priests, but nothing had worked. They were still injured and sick, so here they were at Bethesda for their truly last-ditch hope. Because it seems that God had built in a kind of miracle lottery system in Jerusalem. Uh, the water of Bethesda could heal people, and it could heal people of anything. It could cure the ills that nothing else could reach, but it only worked very occasionally, only when the water was stirred up, and only for the first person who got into the water when it was stirred, as Theo said. Um, and who knows how often those waters were stirred up. Maybe it was every day. Maybe it was every 10 years. It was not on any kind of schedule that anyone could predict. So the best that these poor people could do was to camp out permanently in these colonnades by the pools and wait and hope. It honestly seems to me to be quite a cruel system. Um, and maybe it was all the crueler for having no kind of human oversight. No official was there to take names and hand out numbers or to tell people to wait at home, come back in six months when their turn comes around. There was no kind of communal fairness or civility either. It was elbows out, every man for himself, with the result that the least able and most isolated people waited for years and years, repeatedly failing to get into the water first, while the younger and more able-bodied people pushed in ahead of them. So this particular man in chapter 5 had been waiting to be healed for 38 years, we learn in verse 5. Jesus finds that man and heals him. And when Jesus heals him, we learn two very important things about Jesus. We learn about his power and we learn about his compassion. Power because no one else on earth could do this miracle. No one on earth could do this miracle. If any other rabbi or priest or mystic or holy man could have done it, and they could do some miracles, but if they could have done this one, they would have done it within this 38-year time span. Bethesda was the place of last resort. It was the lottery for the worst cases who had no other hope. And Jesus healed this man, and he did it pretty casually. No effort, really, at all, was it? He didn't need the water. He didn't need any props. He just said in verse 8, get up. And the man got up. That's power. And we also see compassion because Jesus went to the saddest case of all the sad cases there, the absolute no-hoper, the one who'd waited 38 years to win the miracle lottery and hadn't even won the lottery. Jesus knew all about that and went to him. That's compassion. So Jesus, who is in very nature God, shows us that our Heavenly Father has a heart to heal. If he leaves people for a time unhealed, then we can be sure that it's not because he can't help and it's not because he doesn't care. Our God has a heart to heal. But second now, let's look at the relationship between healing and sin. Uh, and it shows up in this passage and uh, we see that it's really not a simple relationship. In fact, it's quite complex. So at first, when we meet the paralyzed man in verse 5, we don't really know anything about his sin. It doesn't tell us about that. Uh, all we see of him is his great suffering and his long-term disability. But then later on, if you look down at verse 14, 
Jesus meets up with him again in the temple, and he tells this man, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And this sentence is very revealing. It tells us a lot about this man's specific case, and also a lot about the relationship between healing and and sin in general. So we learn in verse 14 that the paralyzed man had been a sinner in the past because of the words, sin no more. Uh, The command is not from Jesus to repent and be forgiven, and that implies that he had already been forgiven. There's uh, no point in sinning no more if you're still carrying the guilt from your past sins. So perhaps forgiveness of sins was part of this man's healing, as it was for the paralytic who was lowered through the roof in Mark chapter 2. And that would make it a very important part of his healing. In fact, the most important part of his healing, that his relationship with his heavenly father had been restored through forgiveness. Forgiveness was much more precious than having a working body because Jesus doesn't go on to say, hey, take care of your body now. Be careful. Don't take any risks. Eat plenty of vegetables and work out twice a week. He doesn't say that. He says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The sin then is what's truly dangerous for this man not anything that can harm his body. Imagine how bad it would be in their culture to be an invalid for 38 years. Imagine how terrible that would be. To be shunned, an outcast, treated as a sinner, to often go hungry, to be dirty and lonely and friendless and oh, so incredibly bored. 38 long, empty, tedious years. Surely already it was one of the worst lives to have been lived on earth. But Jesus, in verse 14, warns the man about something worse. More sin will buy you something worse than that. That is such a serious warning, isn't it? Do we hear this? Surely one of the great battles within the human heart is to convince it of the very severe danger of sin. It's a battle that certainly still rages in my heart. I am way more casual about sin than Jesus is in this verse. COVID came around in 2020, and I hid in my house. I sprayed my groceries with Lysol. I put a mask on my face whenever I went out in public. Because it could what? Put me in bed for a week or two? Kill me, maybe? What was the real harm there? On the other hand, temptations to sin come around every single day. And where is my alarm? Where is my urgency? Where are the face masks and the Lysol? I still treat sin so casually. No big deal. I got this. When in reality, I am facing a threat to my soul that is more serious than 38 years of paralysis. We need to spend some time with this verse, don't we? Spend some time in verse 14. We need this in our hearts. So the Jewish teachers at the time viewed bodily suffering as a punishment for sin. But that is such rubbish. Um, We're going to see that clearly in John chapter 9 a bit later on. In the case of the man who was born blind, Jesus' own disciples ask him, Who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was the way that the disciples had been taught to think that when you see suffering, it's a punishment for sin. In their culture, people who suffered were treated as sinners and in some way responsible for their suffering, which was so unbelievably cruel, adding insult to injury. 
And Jesus, in chapter 9, with the man born blind, he just completely debunks that idea. He says that math doesn't work. It's not the reason for his blindness. But I also think that he debunks that logic here in chapter 5 and verse 14, because he shows that suffering, even 38 years of paralysis, is simply not sufficient as a punishment for sin. Is it? It's not even close. So to say that suffering is a punishment for sin would be like God as judge in a criminal court having someone come before him and saying, hmm, let's see, you committed 14 murders. I sentence you to five hours of community service. It's just not close. Our present suffering simply cannot be God's punishment for sin because they're just not adequate. Instead, the Christian philosopher Peter Kraft is right to say, suffering is not punishment for sin, it's therapy for sin and opportunity for sanctity. Suffering gets our attention. It causes us to stop and listen, to take caution, to be wise and humble. So better then that we remain unhealed until we're ready to honestly acknowledge and repent of our sin. But maybe you're asking, well, John, what is sin? What do you mean by the word? How could it be as serious as all that? And the answer to those questions shows up in this passage again. So uh, let's keep looking at it while we explore our third theme of uh, the healing miracle is a sign. You've still got your Bibles open and you glance up to the top left column on page 890. You can find the last verse of chapter 4. And the last verse of chapter 4 says uh, that the healing of the centurion's son in the previous chapter was the second sign that Jesus did. You see that right there? Um, and John calls all the miracles of Jesus signs. Uh, and, and his uh, listing of them would make this healing at Bethesda the third sign that Jesus had done. Um, so Jesus healed out of his great love, and he healed out of his great compassion to ease human suffering. But he also healed in order to give signs about who he truly was, uh, to reveal the truth about himself. Um, so this healing miracle was unmistakable evidence of his divine authority. I have no doubt at all that Jesus went to Bethesda on the Sabbath deliberately. He knew he would find lots of sick people there, and he chose the most desperate case there to heal deliberately. And he also made sure to heal a man with a shabby character who would then betray him to the Pharisees, because all of these details maximize the impact of the sign. It's showing everybody who he really is. Um, so let's briefly review the sequence. Verse 8, Jesus heals the man and tells him to get up, take your bed, and walk. What's the purpose of that command? The bed was probably pretty gross, not at all valuable property. Uh, Jesus told him to carry it around. Why? So that he could get the Pharisees' attention for Sabbath breaking. Now, to be clear, <clears throat> Jesus' command did not at all break the actual law of Moses. This was not the kind of labor that Moses commanded God's people to rest from on the Sabbath. Instead, it broke the interpretive rules of the Sabbath from the rabbis in the Talmud, the self-described fence around the law. And uh, sure enough, the Pharisees immediately noticed this, and in verse 10, they confronted the man. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. The man explains that he'd just been healed. I'm sure the Pharisees knew that he'd been sick for 38 years, and the man explains that the man who worked the miracle on him 
that nobody else had been able to do, then commanded him to carry his bed. What was the response of the Pharisees? Point him out so we can confront him and accuse him of Sabbath breaking. <clears throat> so do you see that? In their anxiety to uphold a man-made law, they showed zero interest in the marvelous healing itself. No praise to God for setting the man free. No celebration that his life was made new after 38 years. No, we want to find this man so we can criticize him for commanding you to carry your mat. That, friends, is what we mean when we use the word sin. It's that kind of heart that's so sick that it can respond to the goodness of God like that. Let's go on. Jesus then finds the man in the temple and tells him to stop sinning. We've already explored that serious warning in verse 14. What does the man do right away? He goes straight back to the Pharisees in verse 15 to tell on Jesus and get him into trouble. So this man is really proto-Judas. Uh, this is utter betrayal. Jesus healed you after 38 years, and you choose immediately to side with the people who want to murder him? This is what we mean by sin. We see it twice here, and we see that it's the kind of sick heart that can respond to God like that. Actually, respond to God by wanting to murder him. And friends, we all have it. This is our problem. I really don't think in either case here in this story, either with the Pharisees or with the man, there was very much doubt at all that Jesus had come in the power of God. It's obvious. The healing miracle speaks for itself. No other power on earth could have done it, only God. And Jesus makes it even more plain in verse 17 when he tells them, my father is working until now and I am working. That was clear to them because of their laws. The Talmud declared that God had to work on the Sabbath Babies were born on the Sabbath. Life was given on the Sabbath. Prayers were answered on the Sabbath. God must be working. He couldn't take a day off from being God. And Jesus leveraged this understanding to confirm his own identity as God's son. My father is working. I am working. And of course, they totally got it. Verse 18, they sought to kill him because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You might hear some people say Jesus never in his lifetime claimed to be God, that the disciples invented that later. What rubbish! It's right here in the text. It's the reason he was crucified. There's no confusion. And his signs and his words and their own laws proved it true. God had stepped onto the stage with them, and they wanted to murder him. That is the true heart of sin. Sin is not at its heart about wanting to fool around and have a little fun. It's not about an extra drink or a private indulgence or a bit of skirt on the side. If you peel back the symptoms of sin, the heart of sin wants to kill God. It wants to kill him for the simple reason that God tells us what to do. And we don't want anyone telling us what to do. The Pharisees wanted to tell everyone what to do, how to keep the Sabbath. We make the rules, you follow them. Until it came to the point that they were so addicted to making the rules and telling other people what to do that they even told God what to do. They demanded that God himself follow their rules. And when he refused, they killed him. They killed 
The paralyzed man was happy to be healed, but as soon as a command came from his Lord, sin no more, he turned on him and wanted him dead. We kill God because we don't want to be told what to do. But then the truth is, we can't live with God without God. We are derivative creatures. We draw our life from his life, not just initially, but daily, constantly, hour by hour, minute by minute. We kill him, we die. Killing him is suicide, and yet we still do it. And that is why we're sick. That's why we're so sick. How good then? How good and kind and merciful he is to come into that, to save that, to heal that. He could kill us, and he could live without us perfectly well. It's completely what we deserve for the insane desire we all have to kill him, yet he doesn't, and he didn't. Instead, he forgives that most hateful of all crimes. He cleanses us from that most disgusting of all stains. The sign is right here in this text, in the merciful healing of this awful, awful man. He was given a wonderful new start. He was given a gracious and sober warning, all that he needed to have life. And even when he turned on that gift and spat in the giver's face, even then, he kept his life, didn't he? He didn't lose his healing. Such is the sky-high patience and kindness of our God. And he is just as kind to you and to me. So the question I have for us as we take this message home today is the one that Jesus asked the man in verse 6. It's a very interesting question. In verse 6, Jesus asked him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? In the context of this story, it sounds like a pretty dumb question, right? Such an obvious question. The man had been an invalid for 38 years. He was sitting there by the pool of Bethesda doing nothing else than waiting to be healed. Of course he wanted to be healed. But then we find out later that he didn't really, did he? He didn't really want to be healed. He betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees because he didn't want to be told what to do. Therefore, he really didn't want to be healed, not deeply, truly healed, not if it meant making peace with God and having God tell him what to do. So how about us? Do we want to be healed? It naturally follows from all that we've seen today that being healed comes with a price tag. The only medicine is God, the power of God to reach down into the parts that other medicines can't reach, yes, but more than that too. Not just the power of God, we need God himself. We're sick for the very reason that we don't have enough God. He is our very life, and we've pushed him out of the way. We push him away, and then we get busy dying. So there's no true and lasting healing until we receive God back again, until we repent and make our peace with God. So do we want to be healed? When we take God back, we get his commands back. He leads, and we follow. He tells us what the rules are, and we say, yes, Lord. And if we're not ready to say, yes, Lord, then we're not ready to be healed. And maybe, of course, there are other reasons, too, why we're not ready to be healed. Um, maybe we do really love God. Maybe we've made our peace with him, and we're ready to do whatever he says. But there's still something about us on the outside or on the inside 
that's broken in some way, doesn't work properly, and we don't feel in any rush for that thing to be healed. It's okay. It can stay. We've learned to live with it. In some ways, it's become part of who we are. And if that's you, then I just want to affirm with you that that's okay. Not all of those broken things are automatically healed in this life, and it's okay if we don't really want them to be. The lesson of John chapter 5 is that physical health is not the be-all and end-all of human flourishing. The sickness that we most need healing from is sin, and we must attend to that. The quality of life we most need going forward is holiness, and we must attend to that. But sickness and sin are not the same thing. Jesus shows them to be totally separate, and health and holiness are not the same thing either. You can pursue holiness whether or not you're physically healed, and you can certainly be healed and still be deeply unholy. Therefore, it's okay if Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? And the real answer is, no, not yet. For whatever private reason you might have, the disability does some good in your life that you're not ready to lose, that's okay. But I also want to speak to you if the answer is yes. Do you want to be healed? Yes, Lord, I do. What kind of healing can we expect right now as children of the living God? And to that, there's a clear answer for us right now, and there's a clear answer for us later. <clears throat> the answer for us right now is that we can have the healing of forgiveness immediately, the healing of a clean conscience before God. I've promised you before, and I'll promise you again, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead to be your Lord, and you ask him to forgive you, then you are forgiven that very moment. I promise you, right now, your, your record is wiped clean in heaven, no matter what was on it before. Forgiven, cleansed, made new. Your conscience is objectively clean, and you should feel it to be clean. And there is no condemnation for you starting right now. So that, of course, is the biggest problem sorted and that is a present reality. <clears throat> then we also know that in the fullness of time, everything will be healed. When Jesus comes back and our bodies are resurrected, every tiny part of us will be made well. Our eyes will see, our ears will hear, our feet will run, our memories will remember things, and our hands will do all the many things that hands were designed to do. And so on for every tiny part of us. Our sexuality will be healed. False and lustful desires will be done away with. And although I can't completely imagine what that means, I do believe that there is core maleness and femaleness in the new creation, but that marriage, as we now experience it, is swallowed up in the bright new reality of our marriage to Jesus. For all of us is healed in the end, body, heart, mind, and soul. And in that way, at least, all our prayers to God for healing are answered. But in between those two clear realities of the now and not yet, what about physical healing now? Lord, I want to be well. And we see that we are fully invited to ask. And we ask with the confidence that God can do it and has a heart to do it. And I myself have seen him do it in mighty and scientifically confounding ways. And I know that many of you have too. We are invited, indeed commanded, in the New Testament to pray for one another's physical, mental, and emotional healing. And I think in doing so, what we're really asking is to borrow some of our future heaven rea heavenly reality into the present. 
So to claim now a portion of what's already our eternal inheritance. And as with all good things, it is ours through the cross of Christ, through the suffering of Jesus on our behalf, through the gracious gift the Father uh, gave us to uh, give up his, the life of his own son for our sake. He bears our griefs, he carries our afflictions instead of us, so that when we are healed, he is made sick at the cross. And we rejoice and give thanks for the love of God that would pay our debts and send us gifts. A father loves to give, so don't be afraid to ask him if you are ready to be healed and to believe that what you ask in Jesus' name will be done for you. If today is to be a day of healing for you, we encourage you to come to the prayer ministry, um, which will be in the four corners of the room during communion, and have others pray for you. And Lord Jesus, send the power of your Holy Spirit upon us for healing today. We ask you, we do want to be healed, we do want to be made well. We are ready to receive you as our Lord, and to do what you say, Lord. So please make us well in your mighty name.